If you are here today and you've never given your life to Christ and you realize, man, I need Him. If you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that He has been raised from the dead by God, you can know that you are saved. Hello and welcome to the Love Key Church podcast where we share our church's message of the week. My name is Heinz Winkler, and together with my wife, children, and our leadership team, we host Love Key Church here in Somerset West, online, and on this podcast. It is our mission to help you to encounter God, align with His purposes, reign in life, and help others to do the same. We trust that you will find this message empowering, encouraging, and inspiring. Please share it with your friends and family and write a review for us. And a huge thank you goes out to those who have already done so. May you be thoroughly blessed as you listen to this message. For those who maybe haven't been here for a while or those who are just joining us today, like my wife's beautiful Klaus, <laughs> hello. Uh, <laughs> we are busy with a series through the book of Romans. And um, it's called One Gospel, One Church. How many of you know and believe there's only one gospel? That was too slow. How many of you believe there's only one gospel? Only one church. Yes, amen. And um, we've been journeying through this epic letter that Paul wrote to the church in Romans. And we saw that God has one standard, His righteousness, that there's one way to get to that standard, and it's by faith. That the gift, there's one gift to Jesus Himself. There's one baptism. There's one Holy Spirit. There's one glory that we are all working towards that is on the other side of suffering. There's one destiny. Um, there's one love that God has for us that cannot separate, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the previous time I was here, we spoke about one seed, and we saw, as, as Paul goes into this section of the letter where he speaks about the people of Israel, the Jewish people, we, see, we saw that Paul jumping in this thing, trying to explain to this church, this divided church between Jew and Gentile, that, hey, God decides who is righteous because of the seed of the promise, and it's not only by physical lineage it's by spiritual lineage and what does that mean and and he show he's starting to show us that that through Christ we have access to what God promised to the Jews and that brings us to chapter 10 of Romans today um, if you've missed any of these please go back and and watch or listen and uh, so you can get up to speed with with where we're at and all the time, I want to encourage you just to read your Bible, read Romans with us. You know, take, the, take it every day and you can start, go back to chapter 1 again and, and read parts of it every day and, and just let the Holy Spirit minister to you. Amen? All right. So today I want to start with a, a bit of a personal testimony, a bit of a personal story, because in a way it relates to what we're going to read today. And um, I don't always like to to talk about myself and my story, because I, I, I think it's in, it's, it's in a way, it's kind of what I'm going to talk about. It's, it's this weird our irony that uh, I want to talk about insecurities, and I guess I, sometimes I have this thing of, 
I don't want to feel like I'm talking about myself all the time. Um, you know those moments where your wife kicks you under the table? You know, sometimes it feels like that. I don't want to talk about myself too much. No one else's wives kick them under the table? <laughs> you know, the men know that she kicks you and you go, hey, what is that for? And she didn't want you to do that. She wanted you to get the hint <laughs> that where you are going is not good. Anyway, so as a young person, I struggled with insecurities and, and low self-esteem, I guess like most teenagers. Anyone here that can relate? Some insecurities, some issues? Okay. And even after I got saved as a 16-year-old, um, I felt uncertain, unsure, in many social situations. What I didn't know at the time was that I'm actually an introvert, but like you now know, I'm a recovering introvert by God's grace. And um, whenever I would make a mistake or fail, it would just compound my insecurities because I was very hard on myself. I wanted to do everything right the first time. And um, sometimes I think it's, it's also a bit of DNA because I see the same thing in my, my oldest boy. Um, <laughs> You know, there's that thing of, I want to do it right the first time, and if I don't get it right, then you know, there's something wrong with me. Uh, so there's something in that as well. But the combination of being a perfectionist and being detail-oriented and hard on myself, on the other hand, also made me a bit self-righteous and very judgy, hashtag judgy, towards others. Um, and, and I took it upon myself, you know, single-handedly decided that, Everyone around me should be held to the same standard that I put on myself. Have you ever been around people like that? Yes. I was very aware that I'm not one of the cool kids. Anyone else know that? Yeah. Very aware. But at the same time, I was also certain I'm not a complete nerd. I was kind of somewhere in between. And, and because we, we moved around quite a lot when I was in, in the primary school, I never really got a solid bunch of friends. I was never part of a, a gang, um, people that I really built life with. And so I kind of floated between groups in high school. And this kind of kept going in university. I would never sit in the same spot in the same class to always meet new people and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And as uh, the insecurities, well, obviously, as a young boy, the insecurities has a lot to do with, do the goals that I like notice me? I mean, it's just true. Um, and, and I was very aware that they like the cool guys because they are the cool guys, and it's very frustrating. And the goals that do sort of look like they might like you are not the goals that you are necessarily interested in. And, um, but then I realized something. If you can sing, and if you can soki, for those who don't understand Afrikaans, that means dance. Those English-speaking people in South Africa don't know what that is. They only dance los. They don't dance with a partner. So dancing with a partner. I, I, I realize that that is something that has a very positive impact on the opposite sex. So... And, I, and I, I realized at one point that if, I, if a girl can hear me sing and if I can dance with her, then I've got an edge. Even above the cool guys, because even the cool guys, most of them couldn't sing and dance. 
Some of them were proud of the fact that they couldn't sing or dance because it's cool not to. I'm like, <laughs> you haven't gotten the memo, guys. But out of my insecurities and weaknesses, and because, you know, God give, gives all of us gifts. He gives all of us certain abilities. But any one of those abilities can be used to glorify him or for our own gain. And when it's for our own gain, it turns evil. And unfortunately, for a while in my life, I, because of my insecurities and weaknesses, I decided that I'm going to use this to benefit myself and get the attention and the affirmation that I so longed for. And I hurt a lot of people along the way. And then this insecure young guy who's now realized that when he sings, he gets some attention. And if he dances well, you know, there's some attention. Went to take part in some national singing competition. And won, which no one expected. Definitely not me. <laughs> I didn't expect it either. And now you've got a whole country stroking your insecure ego and telling you how amazing you are. Most places you go, not everywhere, but most places. And when you start taking the praise and the worship and the adoration for yourself, that's when you get into dangerous waters. And I dove into those waters and enjoyed it for a while because it pleased my flesh. But because God loved me and he didn't want that for me, he allowed certain circumstances to play together and the cracks in my identity would eventually show and I would feel exposed and I would realize that my spiritual life is actually on the line. And as much as I was saved and wanted to live for God, I was still trapped in my wounds and my weaknesses and my wrong thinking. I remember this one moment big moment in my life. I had dreamed of being on a massive stage with my own band, singing my own songs to a stadium concert and the crowd singing my songs with me. That was a massive dream I had. And that dream was realized in 2005 when I sang at the Dome, which I hear now belongs to We By Cause. But back then, it was still used for concerts and I was there and I played with my band, my songs, for 18,000 people. And they sang my songs with me. And it was a massive high. And I was like, yeah, come on, I've made it. And after everything died down and the evening got quiet and I went home and I sat on my bed alone, I was overwhelmed with this thought. So what now? What was that all about? What was that all for? What does it mean? And, and this overwhelming sense of emptiness just came over me. And I realized that thing that I was chasing was just momentary. Nick, tomorrow night there's someone else doing a show for another 18,000 people and everyone had long forgotten that I was singing there. I entertained a couple of thousand drunk people. 
But what's, what's the eternal value? Johan, these things overwhelm me. I thought that achieving that dream will save me from my insecurities. Well, I believe that the, that gnawing emptiness, that loneliness will subside once everyone was cheering my name and singing my songs. Little did I know at the time that I had already met the only one who can really save anyone. Little did I know at the time that he was always with me. Waiting for me to draw near to him. Waiting for me to worship him in spirit and in truth with a heart completely surrendered to him. Little did I know at the time that I was not created to be worshipped. But that I was created to worship the living God. And little did I know at the time that trying to absorb the praises of people will actually kill me. Little did I know in my perspective how little I knew. Did God make me to be insecure? No. Did he make me to feel like a, like a God, capital, small, small letter? No, he didn't. He created me and you to be in a relationship with him and to worship him with our lives by obeying him out of love, choosing to fear him and trust him. And the only way that can happen is if we realize how much we need him and choose to die to self so that he can save us. And the only way to truly live is to truly die to self and step into the salvation that is in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. As a 16-year-old, I met the Father through Jesus and the Holy Spirit flooded my whole being. That was a real moment with real salvation. And after that, I could never be the same again. But the journey of discovering who the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are and their will and their plan for my life was quite the roller coaster. I could have avoided so much pain, so much heartache, and so much disappointed, disappointment had I just decided to wholeheartedly obey Him in every aspect of my life sooner and walk with Him. And I would have matured so much quicker had I been careful to make too many assumptions about his character, his ways, and how he sees me and how he sees others. I had a zeal for God, that's for sure. Anyone who met me post-16 years old, the student me, you would have known that I love Jesus. You would have known that I had a zeal for God. But there was a lack of of revelation knowledge on my side. Thank God for mature Christian men who discipled me and loved me enough to tell me the truth. Thank God for men who were not impressed by my talents or my achievements, who were not moved by my singing and dancing. 
they cared more about my eternal salvation and that I walk out the calling that God has on my life. So I would like to take a moment and just publicly thank and honor Philip Pretorius, Andrew Gosman, Bill Bennett, Ryan Cayley, and Ben Skuman. I love you, and I appreciate you more than you know. Through them, God saved me multiple times. How many of you know that you can get saved and get yourself in a very bad position with your own choices? And it takes people that really love you, who are willing to go where you are and say, hey, Stop it. This is not who you are. You are a son of God. That is not how a son of God operates. Come on, let me help you. Let me show you. Let me slap you around a little bit. But the headspace that I was in at a certain time is the kind of headspace that Paul describes the Jews are in. When he gets into chapter 10, we saw in the previous chapter, he's lamenting the state of the Jewish people, and he continues to do that in this next chapter. And just as I desperately needed to be saved from myself and my own thinking and my own brokenness, the Jewish people need to be saved from their thinking that is not in line with God's word. And that's why today's message from Romans 10 is called One Salvation. One Salvation. So let us dive right into the word of God. Romans 10 from verse 1. I'm going to break this up again. We're going to do bits at a time. So... um, Tanya, just be awake. Thank you for being there on slides today. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Everyone say saved. For I bear them witness that, listen, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. All right, Paul desires to see Israel saved. What does he mean? What does he mean that he wants to see them saved? He wants, to see, uh, he wants them to believe the gospel that Jesus Christ is indeed the long-awaited Messiah and that they need to put their faith in him to be rescued from the wages of sin. They need to be saved as much as you and I need to be saved. He's just being very specific about them because they are God's first point of entry, I almost want to say. That's, that's where God sent the gospel first, was to the Jews. Now, from this first statement, we should take two things, and that is that to have a heart for the Jewish people, that we as Gentiles should have a heart for the Jews to be saved. Would you agree? I believe we should have that heart. We should have a heart for Israel as a nation and for the people of, of God in that nation that do not know their Messiah yet to meet him. Amen? And we should have a heart for people in general 
to be saved. We should have a burden to see people saved. Amen? All right. He says that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has a zeal for something, but they have no clue how to do it the right way? Over, many, over the many years of my music career, I met many wannabe singers or their moms. My can buy a sing. And then I have to listen. And some of them want to do it in a shopping mall or in a lift. Hey, I get the CD. Can I feel sung? My word. And so, so I've, I've had many people that have a zeal for singing, sing or play their music to me, and they just don't have the knowledge or the ability to sing. All right? <laughs> Have you ever encountered anything like that? Maybe in your industry or your line of work, you've seen something similar. But in most cases, you know, I, I had to find a way to nicely communicate that, uh-uh. I'm sure that you have a zeal for this, but I'm pretty sure God called you to have a zeal for something else. Because it's not this. Some people, I would just say, you know what? You can sing whenever you want to. You don't have to, you know, make money with it. You can just have fun on the weekends, buy a karaoke machine, and sing to your friends. That's you. As soon as you tell me, this is how I want to make a living, whoa, that's a whole other ball game, a whole other sing game. Anyway, so in the same way, in a much great, with much more seriousness, obviously, he is saying that they have a zeal for God, but that they have not knowledge accordingly, okay? Now, he elaborates on what he means, and we continue with the scripture. For they, these Jewish people, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Everyone say believes. Believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. All right. Now, so Paul comes out of the blocks here with quite a hectic accusation. He says they are ignorant. How many of you get excited when someone says, hey, you're ignorant? Do you like it? No, most of you would be offended. And if you haven't read the bait of Satan, you will stay offended. Some people are like, what the heck is the bait of Satan? Get the book, read it, and do what it says. Offense will keep you back. But, the, I mean, he's writing this letter to Jewish and, and Gentile believers in the Roman church. He says, you are ignorant of what God's idea is, of what God's brand, uh, his, uh, his brand of righteousness. And, and he says they seek, when you seek, that's a verb. He says they are actively trying out of their own ideas with their own strength to establish their own version of righteousness. What does that sound like to you? When God has a standard, we spoke about it in the beginning, the one standard, God has a standard. And he says there's one way. And now they go, no, 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 we have another way. 
That's what they're doing. They're saying we have another way, our own ideas. And so what does this sound like to you? To me, it sounds like cultural Christianity as well. When, 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 you, when the Bible says this is who God is, how his kingdom works, and you go, hmm, that's nice, but I think I should do it this way. And then I build a culture around that, and we start to worship that culture. It's the same thing. It's the same danger that we can step into, even in this church. If we take anything that we come up with in our flesh, and we make it as important or more important than the Word of God, we fall in the same trap. And we cannot allow that to happen. Paul is saying that the Jews have missed God's intention with the law and righteous living and that they've added their own man-made rules and rituals as well along the way and in the process they've missed the one that they are trying to please. They think they are pleasing God, but they're actually just pleasing themselves. And he actually goes as far as to say he's do, they're doing it, they're trying to um, live out their own sense of righteousness. What's another way of saying that? Self-righteousness. If you're trying to live out righteousness on your own, it's going to be self-based. So it's self-righteousness. What's the problem with self-righteousness? You, the same way I was in my insecurity, making up rules that I should live by and then enforcing them on others. You decide what is righteous and what's not. So your identity is built upon your own actions and your view of others, and it's built upon whether they live up to your standard, according to who? According to you. That is when you are self-righteous. Have you ever seen a clueless husband who thinks he loves his wife well, and, she's, and he thinks she's happy? But everyone around them can see that she's not happy because he misses her completely. Anyone seen anyone like that? Thank God. I'm so glad. But I've seen it. The guy's like, my life's amazing. My wife feels loved. And she's like, not. <laughs> not so much. This is, this, is, this is kind of what Paul is describing. He's saying, you say you love God, but your actions deny your words. Does that make more sense? So Paul is contrasting the righteousness of law, which they are trying to achieve, versus the righteousness that comes by faith. And we see as we continue to read. Let's read the next part. But the righteousness of faith, it does something. It speaks. The righteousness of faith speaks. And it's, he even tells us what way does it speak. Listen up. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That you, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then he says, why? For the scripture says, whoever, everyone says whoever, 
believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Did you know that all those famous quotes are from the same chapter in the Bible? Well done for the five that do. All right. Paul says that the righteousness of faith speaks a certain way. This means that righteousness of the law also speaks a certain way. And he's just told us how it speaks. It looks like it's, uh, uh, sorry, that it looks like by showing that the Jews do things their own way and have not submitted to God's righteousness. That's how the legalistic side speaks. Now he's contrasting it with the voice of faith, the voice versus the voice of legalism. And now the righteousness of faith speaks and first tells us what not to say. So it's very interesting. He says, faith speaks. It speaks this way. Now faith opens its mouth and goes, do not do this. So first of all, faith is teaching us what not to do in faith. And it's saying that we should not... um, Ask, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down? Who is Christ? Christ means anointed one. So to them, it would mean Savior, Messiah. That's who they were waiting for. And we should not ask whether there's someone else who would go down to the abyss, into hell, into Hades, to bring Christ, the anointed one, the Savior, the Messiah, up from the dead. We should not ask these questions. Both these questions would imply that the one asking the question does not have the power or the will to do it himself. Why would you ask, is there anyone who would do this or that? Like, how many of you live in a house with other people? How many of you, the moment you got married, you realized... Ek is now ons iemand en a mens. I'm now our, someone, and anyone. Because as soon as your wife wants you to do something, she goes, someone should move that to the, from there to there. Will anyone clean this up? You become those things. And if you have children, then they, becomes those, they become those things. So have you ever been in a house situation where there's a mess on the floor And someone goes, I wonder who's going to clean up this mess. (laughs) What you are saying is that you are unwilling or unable to do that. That's what Paul is saying about these Jews. He's saying, they're going, I wonder who will go up to heaven and bring Christ down. Or I wonder who will go down to the abyss to bring Christ up. They are unwilling and unable to bring Christ down or to bring Christ up. They, that's what it implies, the fact that they say that. Now I lost my place in my notes. We should not ask these things. Christ is Savior and Messiah. He is the salvation. I believe that the statement means that one must realize by faith. Da, that's what I'm going to say. The premise of the question, who will ascend or descend? The question is a question of possibility. 
Is it possible to bring Christ down or to bring him up? But it's the wrong premise. He's saying you're asking the wrong question when you ask these questions. Why? Because it's not a question of possibility. It's a question of necessity. Is it necessary to bring Christ down from heaven? No. Is it necessary to bring Christ up from the abyss? Ooh. This is such a good revelation. Just stick with me. It is not a question of whether it's possible to bring Christ down from heaven or to bring him up from the abyss. Why do I say that? Because Paul is speaking of Jews waiting on their Christ, waiting on their anointed one, their Savior, their Messiah. They are waiting for someone to bring the Savior down or to bring him up. But Paul knows intimately well that this Christ has already descended from heaven to earth by humbling himself to be born in human form. He's already descended. So it's not necessary. And he also knows that you can't take him back from Hades or the abyss or death because he's already been there, conquered it, got the keys, got the t-shirt, and he came back. Read uh, Revelation 1 and you will see Jesus himself appearing to John say, I've got the keys of Hades and death. So it's not necessary. It is not possible for them, but it's not necessary. For who was it possible? For Jesus Christ, his blood, it was possible. So it's not necessary for them to bring him down or to bring him up. So faith is saying, do not ask these questions. It is very important for us as Christians in general to know which are the wrong questions and which are the right questions for us to ask. What is the good news that faith now shares? It says, don't ask this, okay? So what should we do? It says then, in contrast to what you shouldn't be saying, it says, the word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. And what is that? That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Some of you are going, you've read that already. I know. I'm reading it again because it needs to sink into your spirit being. It needs to become a part of who you are. I don't know about you, but I love what faith has to say. I didn't like much what the legalistic stuff had to say, but I like what faith is saying. But do we get this really? Listen, listen closely, and, and, and I pray that God will reveal this to all of us. The word is near you. What is it, in other words, not? Far. It's not far. It's near. He just said, do not ask to bring who down? Christ. 
Don't ask to bring Christ down or don't ask to bring Christ up. Then he says, the word is near you. You see, it wasn't possible for them to bring him down or to bring him up, but they were asking the wrong question. You with me? Now Paul is saying to them, it's not necessary for you to bring him down or up because he is near. He has already done the heavy lifting. He has already done the impossible. Now he's near. He's near. (laughs) Oh, my word. He says the word is near after just speaking about Christ. How many of you know John 1.1? What does John 1.1 say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now he's saying the word is near you. All right? (laughs) He says the word... Jesus Christ, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, he's near you. How near is he? He is in your mouth. He is in your heart. You've read these scriptures before and it's only becoming clear to you now. I know the feeling. He's in your mouth. How many of you will allow just anyone or anything inside your mouth? How many of you remember that show, Fear Factor? They put stuff in there. I'm like, that's not enough money. (laughs) But how many of you see this as a very intimate part of who you are? Right? If you are healthy and normal and married, you only want to kiss your wife with this mouth. And your children... With your, when it's closed, obviously. But you only open your mouth to kiss your wife. Because it's intimate. I know that's a bit graphic, but we need to realize this. Paul is writing this for a reason. The word is near. He is in your mouth. It's an intimate thing. Intimate. Do we get this? And then he says he's in your heart. But, I mean, Paul is just an amazing writer because he's building this picture. I hope you can see it. And the same question goes for your heart. Would you allow just anything into your heart? Isn't that the place that you refer to that is your most vulnerable part? It's actually the essence of who you are. He says, Christ The word is near. He's in your mouth and in your heart. Paul is saying that Christ, the word, is not just close. He is near. He's so near that he's in your mouth and in your heart. And this is the word that Paul and others preach. The gospel, the good news, the word that goes out that brings people to salvation. He's saying this in the scripture. Now remember, he's mainly speaking about and to Jewish people. His Jewish brothers and sisters in general, but obviously also the Jews in the Roman church, which he's addressing this letter to. But we, but we, um, but we did see in this same passage that there is no distinction when it comes to faith between Jew and Greek. So as much as he's talking about the Jews, he's also making it applicable to all people. 
Can you see that? So we can apply the same principle to the Jews and the Gentiles. And that principle is that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Okay, have you noticed again, if, then. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? If, then. How many of you want the then? But you're not so sure about the if. The then is salvation. Yes, I want to be saved. Being set free of the penalty of sin. But it is dependent on the if. And this if consists of two important parts. Please notice the following very important things. The words that he's using over and over again. Word, mouth, confession. Believe, heart, salvation. Did you notice that a lot of times in that scripture? Paul just said that the word is near. In our mouths, in our hearts. Now he says that if you do with your mouth in which Jesus is, you take this mouth in which Jesus is, the Christ, the word, and you have to actually do something. Confess. You have to speak. You have to proclaim. You have to verbalize words. What words? Lord Jesus. Other translations say, Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In the New King James we read, it just says, confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus. Which is to say that I confess Jesus is the master of my life. He reigns and rules and I humbly submit under his authority. Do you see how profound it is that what we are asked to do, we are asked to confess Jesus, is provided to us, according to Paul. But it seems like even though Christ is near in our mouth, we still have a part to play. There's an if. We still have to confess the name above all names. The, the word is in your mouth, but it has to come out. And you have a part to play, to let it out. God is not going to force you to confess it. He's inviting you to just open it up and verbalize what's already there. Jesus is Lord. Woo. Now the same is with the heart. Step one was to confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus. Step two is believe in your heart. Where did Paul say is Jesus also? In your heart. And now he's instructing you to believe something. What? That God raised Jesus from the dead. What did he say you must not ask? Who will bring him up from? Is this sinking in? Are you with me? What are you thinking about? The word. God raised Jesus from the dead. He zeroes in on the main premise of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other faith has this claim. 
that their God humbled himself, come to earth, and died the death we all are supposed to die. No other faith, no other faith can prove historically, archaeologically, factually that Jesus did die and he did rise from the grave. You don't have to believe an airy-fairy piece of word from someone. You can just believe historical facts. The same way that you believe that crappy newspaper that you read every day, that everything written there must be true because someone wrote it. Rather put your faith in something that really happened. Christ Jesus rose from the dead and He is alive evermore. He says we need to believe this with our hearts. The second step to take, to step into salvation is to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. He has already told you that Jesus is in your hearts. Now you have to activate his presence by believing it. An act of faith is to say, I believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Now, just take a moment, sorry, just a moment ago, he said that faith says to not ask if anyone can go down into the abyss to get Christ from the dead. And now he confirms that Christ cannot be found there. He cannot be found in the abyss because he is risen. And when I believe that he has been raised by God along with confessing that he's Lord, I can know I am saved. So Paul gives us a promise if I stand on this promise, if you are here today and you've never given your life to Christ and you realize, man, I need him. If you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that he has been raised from the dead by God, you can know that you are saved. Amen. And he goes on to confirm this with the next part. He says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And again, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here we have that amazing statement where Paul again reminds Jew and Gentile that we all need a Savior and that God has graciously made the Messiah of the Jews the Savior of all the people of the world. Do you notice that Paul focuses on the Lordship of Jesus in this part? He keeps referring to Him as Lord. He says that he's rich to all who call upon him. Call, if you call upon his name, it's also an action. It's a word that comes from your mouth. It's a confession. It denotes a loud action from your mouth. This refers to the confession that Jesus is Lord and saying that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It refers to the meaning of his name. What is the meaning of Jesus' name? What do you confess when you confess his name? What do you call when you call his name? You call salvation. Salvation is when you say, when you say Jesus you say salvation, you say savior, you say deliverer. So when you confess his name, when you call upon his name, you're calling on a savior. Why would you call upon a savior? Because you realize and acknowledge, I need one. I am lost without my savior. I am maybe like the Jew, zealous for a God that I made up or that I grew up with, but I'm without knowledge. I need saving. I need to be saved from wrong thinking. 
I need to be saved from the position that I'm in. And this is important because many people have been taught, maybe unintentionally, that just saying Jesus is Lord and believing in my heart that he's, that he's been raised from the dead, that saves me. But it's not just the action of saying it. It's the deep conviction of knowing I am a sinner in need of a Savior that has to be present. Otherwise, it's just more words. It's like promising your wife, I will be with you until the, till either of us die or Jesus comes and takes us. And then halfway through the marriage, you decide you get a divorce because you don't feel like it anymore. You made a confession with your mouth that I will stay with you no matter what. And then along the way, you decided, hmm, I don't really mean that. I don't feel it anymore. But don't we do that with God? When we confess one day that I believe, that I have this conviction, but then I live the other, another way. Paul goes on to say, how then? Shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's more scripture. You can put the scripture up. How then shall they call on him, God, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach and sorry, how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings, tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul now reverse engineers the salvation of the Jews and others who will also hear the gospel, he asked how would it be possible for them to do what he just explained, which is to call the name of the Lord. How will they do that? If And he, and he makes this logical connection that for them to call, they need to have faith. They need to believe. For them to have faith, they need to hear the gospel. And for them to hear the gospel, someone must preach the gospel. And for someone to preach the gospel, they must be sent to preach the gospel. Logical, right? Beautiful. I love how this guy writes. Then we hear an Old Testament quote by Paul, which he also refers to in Ephesians 6, when he speaks about the armor of God and the shoes of the willingness to proclaim the gospel. He talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel, who bring the good news. He's explaining to his readers and to us how important it is for the gospel to be preached and that it's important for the Jews to hear the gospel. Then he makes a profound and important observation. They have not obeyed the gospel. Everyone says, obey the gospel. Did you know that hearing the gospel does not save you? Only hearing the gospel does not lead to salvation. You need to obey it. How do you obey it? Well, he just told you. 
once you hear the gospel, you realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior, that God has actually brought him near to be in your mouth and in your heart. And all you need to do is truthfully confess that he is from now on Lord of your life and that you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. That is what you need to do in response to hearing the good news. Are we on the same page? Then Paul reveals the source of faith, hearing the word of God. There's still quite a bit left of this message. I'm going to summarize the end. He goes and then he says, well, have they not heard? He makes this logical build up and he says, well, have they not heard? Yes, they have. And then he quotes um, Psalm 19 from verse 1 to 4. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. When you go to Psalm 19, one, uh, 19 verse 4, it's, it's actually talking about the, the creation proclaiming the good news of God. And this takes us back to Romans 1, 2, 3 where he says, no one has an excuse to say there's no God. There's two truths to hear here that no one has an excuse to not believe that there is a God. And at the same time, we need to be sent to preach the gospel so that they can hear it, so that they can have a choice to believe it. Both are true and both should be happening. Amen? So today, as we close at our time together, we have these questions before us. First of all, am I saved? Am I really, truly saved? Do I know who I am in Christ? Am I maybe guilty of having a zeal for a God, but it's not the God of the Bible? Or am I really, truly saved with the knowledge that Jesus is Lord? If I confess with my mouth, He is Lord, and I believe in my heart that He is, that He has been raised from the dead, can I know that I'm saved? And secondly, maybe we have made that confession and we do believe that and we stand on that truth. What are we going to do with that knowledge? Are we going to keep it to ourselves or are we going to share it lovingly with those around us? Jew, Gentile, work friend, family, whatever it might be. Will you share this good news? Because maybe, you know, you can hear that what Paul says and go, well, they don't have an excuse. They must have heard it before. But that's a cop-out. We need to lovingly stand on the Word of God and say, I am going to do whatever I can to reach the lost, to seek and save those who Jesus created and whom He loves and whom He wants to bring into His family. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Key Church Podcast message of the week. I trust that you had a life-changing encounter with God that will help you to align with His purposes so that you can be one step closer to reigning in life. And may you be inspired to share this with others. Have a great week and remember to listen again next week or you can catch us live online or come visit us in person. May God bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you and your loved ones. God bless you. Bye-bye.